Welcome to the Power Kid Podcast, the premier and longest running podcast focused on the modern toy and entertainment industry. Power Kid is an award-winning design and development firm, and we are a proud member of the Adventure Media and Events Podcast Network family. Adventure Media is the publisher of your favorite industry publications, including the Toy Book, the Toy Insider, and the Pop Insider. I am your host, Phil Albritton, and I bring you great conversations with talented people making amazing products for kids. Toys, books, games, TV, movies, I bring them to you here every episode. Welcome aboard. Hello, 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 Power Kids, and welcome to another Power Kid podcast. Guys, every week, it is my honor and privilege and joy to bring you these conversations with great people from all over the industry that are helping to make great things for kids. My guest this week, I'm so excited, is Scott Landsbaum. And it's been a while since we had a lawyer on the show. And I love these shows. We get to go into the minutiae, into the details of law and what the law says about the toy industry and patents and trademarks. This is going to be such a great conversation. Let me introduce you to Scott. Scott has over 25 years experience providing strategic and legal advice protecting intellectual property and negotiation. His clients range from entrepreneurs, inventors, designers, and artists in industries like toys, food, apps, pet, and home and garden, and many, many more. Scott, welcome to the show. Oh, I'm really happy to be here. I, I hope when you said uh, we're going to go into the details of the law that too many people didn't hit the pause button. No way. No way. <laughs> this stuff is, is critical. And one thing that I find about lawyers that deal in the entertainment industry, in the toy industry, is they themselves can be quite entertaining. So not to set the bar too high, Scott. We, I'll try. I'll do my best. <laughs> but it, it's true. We, we operate a, a little bit differently in the, in the things that we try to protect, the IP that we try to protect. They're hopefully inherently fun. And so working on those in any capacity should likewise be a little bit of fun. Is that what you find? Uh, absolutely. In toys? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, the, the toy industry compared to um, some other fields that I work in or other fields that I know other lawyers work in, uh, it is a lot more fun. You know, this, this subject matter, um, you know, dealing with toys and what can they become and how can they spin off into different different areas or properties or things. Um, it's just more more creative and, and, and fun and interesting. Um, you, you know, there's there's definitely a need for for legal work in you know sprinkler attachments and garden hoses and things like that. But um, you know, dealing with uh, robots and rocket ships is is much more entertaining. It's good stuff. Well, and it wasn't always like that for you. So I want you to go back in time and give us your origin into this field. You didn't start in toys. No, I didn't. I, I started at, uh, you know, a very big uh, law firm, O'Melveny and Myers. It's uh, the oldest, oldest continuous law firm in Los Angeles. And now they're all over the globe. And uh, I started in the doing transactional work in the tax department, actually, working on a lot of hedge funds. And and you know uh, financial products that banks would sell and um, acquisitions and mergers, uh, really really quite far away from 
from the toy industry. Uh, but, you know, it was very good training in it for, for doing these types of um, royalty deals um, and, and, and transactions like that, because there's a big focus on f- like flow of funds, you know, what, what money comes in, when does it come in? And then sort of how does it come out? What pots does it, does it fill up? Um, who gets their pot first? Um, and what's left over for other people? Uh, and, and, you know, that's in a lot of ways, very analogous to these royalty deals, you know, sort of like, you know, what money is the company coming in, you know, what gets deducted and, uh, or not? And then how does that flow out to, you know, uh, an inventor or a property owner? Uh, and when, and when does it come? So, so, you know, that aspect of it was, um, was, was really helpful uh, in terms of this, you know, over time, it was not a good fit, I think, personality wise, you know, Um, a little, a little starch shirt, Um, you know, bankers tend to treat their high powered lawyers as sort of fungible commodities, much like their customers, no comment there. Um, uh, and and so I was there a number of years. Um, you know, uh, it was a great place if you want to do big firm law. It was a great place to do it. Um, I think ultimately, I did not want to do big firm law, and um, found out through a friend uh, about an in-house opening at a company called Equity Marketing. Um, there were there's there were two out there. There was Equity Marketing, and then there's an, another company that was like a licensing agent called Equity Management. Um, but equity marketing at the time, we made all of uh, or virtually all of Burger King's um, kids meal promotional toys. Sure. Um, right. We had a retail toy division. We had Scooby-Doo licensed toys, um, a line of bath toys called Tub Tints. We acquired a line of uh, licensed figures called Headliners. Um uh, and that that was my introduction to toys and intellectual property. I, I came in just absolutely cold turkey, uh, really didn't know anything about it. And um, uh, I was in a position of basically supporting all of the internal divisions. So I, I worked with, um, you know, our our Burger King side. I worked on our promotional products for other customers. I worked for our retail division. I worked with the marketing guys, the operations, creative, finance group, um, and it was it was a really great introduction um, to the to the toy industry, uh, and a really great introduction just to sort of being in business in general. You know, there's there's a much different sort of attitude and perspective when you're in a really big law firm and you're an outside attorney. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of different. You're giving advice. You just sort of like, well, here's different options. Here's pluses and minuses. And, you know, you client company, go make a decision. Uh, when you're the in-house attorney, um, you're part of the team. You can't, there's no place for you to just sort of like, you know, lay out some options and then go run and hide in your office while the other people figure it out. So, so it really was quite a transition for me, sort of turning from, you know, a person who, who would sort of sit there and say, well, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. You know, to someone who, who was more responsible for, um, what finding out what is the goal we're trying to achieve and then helping everyone achieve it. Um, 
And your office probably got a lot more colorful too. Yes, absolutely. I, you know, just great, great samples, you you know, big firm law, you wind up with these like, you know, lucite things with cover sheets from a bond issuance or something, (laughs) you know, that my office at equity was filled with toys. And that was, that was great. Um, Except, except for our Shaquille O'Neal headliner toy. So these were figures where like the head was maybe a third of the size of the whole body. So, you know, these big oversized heads and the Shaq toy, the, the head was so big, like the toy could not stand up straight. It, it was constantly <laughs> tipping over. The proportions just didn't work. They just didn't. It did not work with Shaq. No. Um, you know, going, going back to your, uh, your early career, do you still pay attention? Uh, because if, if the toy industry is known for two things, one is fun and the other is mergers. I'm wondering, do you pay attention to uh, toy stocks, toy mergers, what's happening in the industry? Um, what, are your, what are your thoughts there? Well, I so I do pay attention. You know, the toy industry uh, over the last two to three years, I think, there's there's been a lot of uh, consolidation. Um, I think a, a lot of that was was been driven by the bankruptcy of Toys R Us. Uh, I think the impact of that is is still being felt um, and and being uh, concentrated by by the pandemic. Um, you know, Toys R Us their disappearance took a lot of shelf space away from for toys. Um, took a lot of shelf space for toys that are not in Target and Walmart. Um, uh, the, you know, having that shelf space was critical for new products to get discovered, new companies to launch, um, impulse items to get bought. Um, and a lot of the con- consolidation we've been seeing has, re- I think, a lot really been driven by a desire to increase shelf space at Target and Walmart um, and gain more more leverage that way. Um, uh, acquisitions are very tricky. <laughs> it's it's uh, really, really easy to get it wrong, very difficult to get it right. Um, and that's true in the toy industry and every other industry. I mean, you can... <laughs> You can really think a lot uh, and remember a lot of instances where you've read about these big, big mergers, and then two years later, you know, the, the acquiring company is writing off, you know, 30, 50, 70 percent of the value of the acquisition. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what typically goes wrong in those situations? Is there a common thread or things that you see that, yep, that happened again? I think what typically goes wrong is um, – there's an overestimation of what people call synergy. You know, so often people, they, they buy, you know, a company or a product and um, uh, they're justifying it based on, quote, you know, the synergies between the two companies and how those synergies are going to magically result in extraordinary growth for, for both sides. Uh, and and I've, I find that frequently um, that winds up being a lot of marketing speak or, you know, sort of uh, acquisition speak with not a lot of rigorous analysis behind it. Um, there's not a really deep dive into what the, you know, marketing plan or the innovation or distribution plan is that is going to be so different 
from what what the company that you're buying was doing before. Um, and, and sometimes you get into these these deals and you start down a path and you just wind up with this um, uh, inertia, you know, pushing you forward and pushing you forward. And red flags will come up um, uh, and people are just like, well, that's just a little thing. We got the deal going. We're Everything's agreed. Let's keep going. It's going to work. We'll figure it out later. And then you can't figure it out. Yep. And it just becomes too much. And the cultures have to match. Yeah, so, I, I th- that is a huge thing. I mean, you know, sometimes a lot of these times you see companies and they're they're basically they're buying brands, they're buying product lines with no intention of bringing the people in. Um, uh, but a lot of times, you know, the the people are a critical aspect of of the deal and and the cultures aren't quite the same. And and it, it's very difficult. You know, you, you sort of have to sort of expect that, you know, the leaders of the company you're acquiring, you know, they're going to help you for a year in transition and then they're going to go. Yep. Yep. Great. So let's get into your work today. Sure. Um, you operate in a wide variety of categories from toys to food to jewelry. I'm interested, before we narrow the scope and talk about toys specifically, uh, what are some of the commonalities between the the industries that you work in? And But maybe more interestingly, what are the contrasts? What are the differences? Sure, sure. I, you know, the commonalities, um, you know, particularly when you're dealing with, with uh, like convention licensing or property licensing, uh, you know, a lot of it is um, what are you giving someone? What can they do with it? Um, uh, how long do they get it? And how do you get paid? Um, and and what happens when everything falls apart? How do you get your stuff back? Um, you know, those things can be expressed in different ways, though. So I, I represent... Um, uh, a very famous uh, modern artist in in New York. He, he he did the commission for the New World Trade Center. He's done commission at the at the the Brooklyn Arena, whose name is escaping me right now. Um, University of Texas, and and so we have a lot of these issues come up over sort of control of property, um, and you know the control of the artwork and. But it comes out in different ways. So, you know, in a license agreement, you're licensing an entertainment property, you know, you want to approve how it's showing on the box and and what the toys look like, things like that. You know, for him, it's it's more about, you know, where where is this work going to be in the building? What's the lighting going to be? Um, if, if I'm putting this up in panels, you can't move the panels or separate them. Um, issues like that. But it, it all sort of comes from the same place, which is I'm giving you something I created that's precious to me. Uh, and, and I want to make sure you're handling it in the right way and that the integrity of the property is protected. Right. Um, in, in terms of differences, I, I would say the, the biggest difference between the toy industry and a lot of other industries when you're licensing an invention is the need for a patent. Um, the, the toy industry, uh, we work on, on such 
uh, quick turnarounds in terms of how long these innovative toys last. I, you know, they're out for a year or two and then they're done. Uh, and by the time you get the patent, the product's off the shelf. Uh, that, that's just not the case in, in other other industries. You know, other industries are really looking to create and stock evergreen products and want them to last and want to be protected against competition. Um, and it's, it's very difficult to, to license um, uh, into those, those industries and, and the major players in those fields without a patent. Um, I, I represented someone who actually had a, a shoe innovation um, that that we were for for children's shoes that could sort of grow as the child grew and um they were sort of in the middle of the patent process and and it was a big big problem in in getting the deal done yeah the, the speed of the industry it really sometimes it doesn't make sense to have a patent to own the patent That's, because we're moving so fast my, my question though would be at what point is it the right time to get a patent. The, the real analysis is, um, you know, when you look at your invention and what you're licensing, um, you know, first of all, the innovation that you're bringing to the table, it, how you know, how innovative is it really? Or, or what, maybe the better question is, what type of innovation is it? Um, are you really sort of taking things? that are, have sort of been done before and mix and matching them? Are you, um, is your innovation more about applying a specific mechanism to a specific property? You know, most of the toy companies issue their sort of wish lists and, and they'll have, you know, hey, we're licensing this, we're a licensee of, of that property, we need a TV driver for next year, really two years out, you know. Um, and a lot of a lot of the innovation that you see is is not really sort of novel patentable inventions. They're more sort of tweaking, um, uh, you know, actions or mechanisms to do something sort of slightly new that could be marketed in a new way or applied to a property. And I don't want to take anything. I don't mean that to sort of be demeaning at all. I, you know, in terms of what the inventors do, because it's it's really amazing. Those things can be massive hits. Yeah. Uh, right. Combining this and that to create something new uh, that could be. Absolutely massive. So yeah, absolutely not to diminish, you know, that, that form of, of thinking. Yeah. So, so, and then sometimes you really, you really come up with, with something that, that really is patentable and different, you know, a, um, you know, a, a remote control car that, that works in a different way um, or is, you know, geared to, in a certain way that gives it amazing new speed Um certainly like a lot of, you know, electronic things. Um, but, you know, whether something <laughs> might be patentable and whether the product is going to justify the investment in the patent, you know, that's something you need to sort of make up, up a decision you need to make up front. Um, uh, and, and, you know, probably in partnership with whoever you're licensing it, too um, is always good because then now you've got sort of a better understanding of of sort of what your licensee thinks the potential life of the toy is. Um, 
you know, and if, if you're a professional inventor and you've, you've been doing this a long time, or you have, you know, an expertise in, in, you know, super soakers or, you know, flying helicopters or something, then, then you're going to know whether something is patentable or not and whether it's, it's worthwhile. And, you know, different, different product categories within the toy industry are going to, going to help you figure that out. So, you know, something that is a remote control car, remote control vehicle or something, you know, that can be an evergreen product is, is probably going to more warrant an investigation into that, into the patentability and whether it's, it's worth the cost. Um, If you're coming up with a new doll for the, um, you know, Barbie driver next year, probably not. Right. I have many inventors that listen to the show and I'm wondering, are there weak spots in the inventors that you work with in their knowledge as it relates to licensing product or contracts? Um, where, What would you wish that your inventors would go home and study and, and really brush up on? Um, to make your life easier. Yeah, my 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 phone number, right? That's that's what I want them to all brush up on my phone number, brush brush up on their their automatic uh, reflex that you know wh- whenever an issue or a contract comes up, they just pick up the phone. Um, I, I and I I try not. I I really don't mean that in sort of a conceited or an arrogant way, but I I, I think the weak spot among inventors, professional and novice, is is thinking that they can read and understand a contract. Mm-hmm. Um, I, for two reasons, really. You know, one is that uh, oftentimes, if you're sort of living the deal and you've got some sort of, you know, pattern of behavior, sometimes with a, a particular licensee, um, uh, and you have this sort of preconceived notion in your head as to what the deal is and what it's supposed to be. When you read that contract, you're going to read into it what you think it's supposed to be. Um, and I, you know, that's a, a sort of perception bias that that everybody has in all sorts of different circumstances. Um, but but I often find, you know, when I sort of am going through a contract with someone. Um, uh, you know, they'll say, well, it says this, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, that's not really what it says. And, and, you know, you could read this. It's not that precise. You could read it much more broadly. Um, uh, and uh, that I, I think is often sort of a blind spot and a blind problem. Um, the other issue is just legalese is a different language. You know, it, it just sort of reads differently. The words, words have some different sense and, and, you know, the, the context is, is just different. Um, uh, and I really, you know, really urge, urge people to talk to a lawyer. You know, it doesn't have to be me, just anyone who knows, who knows this stuff, you know, don't talk to your PI attorney. Don't talk to the guy that set up your, your corporation. Talk to someone that knows these types of deals. Um, uh, because, uh, it, the contract it 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 does take some some skill to just make sure that it really says what you think it's supposed to say um uh and and then the other i would say the other weak spot which is is somewhat similar to that is is how you describe what you're licensing um and I, again i think a lot of this comes from 
you know, the inventor having this sort of deep knowledge of what the item is and having lived with it for a long time and, and been talking about it and presenting it. Um, uh, and, and then sort of, you know, putting a description in the contract that really doesn't uh, reflect entirely what it is um, uh, and has the potential for sort of limiting what you're getting paid on. Um, and I find a lot of the, a lot of this sort of non-legalese value that I, I bring to a deal is going through those types of points and those types of issues, you know, for either the company or the inventor, you know, making sure that the description of what you're licensing is accurate um, can account for all of the sort of permutations and the way that inventions can sort of grow and, and turn into other things or line extensions or accessories or animation properties and, and making sure that um, everybody is paying and getting paid on the right things. Um, you know, obviously when you represent an inventor, you want that to be as broad as possible. When you represent a company, you want that to be as narrow as possible, but, but always fair. You, you want it, you want it to be fair and, and make sure that, you know, the company is paying on the real opportunity that was brought to the table. No, you've outlined it really well. Scott, one of the things that, that I like to think about with contracts is, is putting the big rocks in the jar first. Absolutely. Having that deal memo or that term sheet up front. Here's the royalty rate. Here's the length of time. Here's the minimum guarantees. Uh, put those those big rocks first and, and come to an understanding around those and then go into the minutiae. Um, you know, the improvement clause. And I think you, you touched on this a little bit in your answer where the company could get in and, and begin to develop your toy or game. And suddenly there are improvements that could be made that makes it more marketable or, or more fun and, and having something built into the contract that allows you, the inventor to own those because you were the source of that invention, that improvement clause. Do you think that's important? I, I, yes and no. Uh, it's, it's uh, a difficult issue to negotiate. I always think it's more important to get paid. Um, <laughs> so, so I, I always think it's critical to get paid on any sort of improved or modified forms of the, the concept. So I, you know, obviously you don't want to give the company some opportunity to, you know, change a couple, you know, the way one mechanism sort of works, but, but take the sort of entire concept behind, behind the invention and then say, well, we modified it. We, we don't have to pay you. Um, ownership of improvements, it, it, it can be very tricky. I mean, partly because um, it, it, at some point, it really only becomes a practical issue if that improvement is itself patentable. Because, mm -hmm. you know, once it's on the market and it, it, it's sort of in the public domain, if it's not patentable, you know, you have to think a little bit about sort of what is the practical effect of being able to sort of own that improvement, you know, once the license terminates and, and the concept comes back to you. Um, it's, 
you know, does the first licensee really have any any legal standing or ability to stop the second licensee, if there is one, from quote using that improvement once the product's already been out on the market? Um, it, it can become more of an issue if the improvements are patentable. You know, if if the original item w- had a patent on it. And now there's an improvement, um, and then you, that's also patentable. You know, does the improvement require or sort of rest on the initial patent? Is it something that's separable? Um, you know, the company obviously feels like they've made a monetary investment in developing that improvement, so they should have some ownership of it. Um, it you know, those those things start to get get tricky and. Um, it's difficult to sort of come up with a rule out outside of the context of of when it's coming up and and looking at the specifics of you know the the item whether there's patents what the improvements really are um, uh, so I I tend to focus you know I found sort of over time that the sort of two holy grails um, from the inventor perspective are getting paid and avoiding liability. <laughs> that that sums it up right there, doesn't yeah. it? It, it? And when one thing that, that you're, you're you're outlining and that in your answers, I see this coming through. It, it's understanding and acknowledging the perspectives from both sides of the table. Why would the inventor want X, Y, or Z? Why would the manufacturer want X, Y, or Z? And that is at the heart of negotiation. And so, um, you know, one of the things I I like um, that you say is that you speak four languages, legal, marketing, creative, and finance. I want to discuss those from your perspective. when When you go into a contract negotiation, why are all four of those important? All four of them are are important because they really help you understand, you know, the product and its life cycle from a holistic standpoint. You know, you really have to understand where is this item sort of going in a in a in the company's product line. What are the expectations? What, if anything, can it morph into? Um, is it a low margin item? Is it a high margin item? Is it slotting into an existing brand so that um, it's going to get a lot of quick and easy recognition? Does the company need to build a new brand from scratch? Um, what are the margins on this thing? And, you know, if, if you just go into a negotiation and say, you know, hey, this is an invention license. It's supposed to be X. Give me X, and the company is coming back and saying, you know, we've, the, the, yes, that's what a standard deal would look like. But you know, we've got these other issues here, or there's these other reasons why um, we need some help. You know, can you be flexible here? Can we, you know, for example, we have to invest. It's a new brand. We're going to have to invest a lot in. Um, marketing the brand, educating consumers as to what this is. Can we be flexible on the royalty rate for the first year and then work up if things are working? Um, Can we maybe defer the advance till we get the first shipment, you know, or part of the advance, things like that. Um, You know, you can stand your ground as an inventor, um, 
uh, and and force a deal, you can work with the company and and try to help them be successful. Um, you know, as as separate entities, creative marketing, you know, finance and and legal. <laughs> you know, if you're in house at the company, um, you often find yourselves talking to to people in different uh, departments who all have their own separate languages and way of talking. You know, when you're dealing with a creative person, um, you know, there are a lot more uh, sort of emotional concerns about, about, you know, what they've created, how it's going to be handled um, and what's, what's going to happen. And, um, you know, marketing and finance tend to be a little more sort of brass tacks. Um, you know, sort of marketing I always view as like a bridge between creative and finance. They sort of, you know, work in both those worlds and, and you know, legal always has its its own language. And you need to be able to talk to all those people and communicate with them in their own language um, uh, and, and work with them so that, you know, they feel that you're on their team and, and you're all working together um, to, to achieve a common goal. Um, and you have to be able to address everybody's concerns. You know, on the inventor side, sometimes, you know, much more with novice inventors, you sort of run into this emotional element of, you know, this this is my baby. I need to have control over it. We need to be, you know, really tight requirements over this, this, and that. Um, and often there's some handholding that needs to be done, you know, sort of to walk through the realities of what a license agreement is, you know, you're, you're going to give it to this company for, because hopefully they have the expertise to, to, you know, bring it to market in a successful way. Uh, and if, if you want to retain control over how it gets developed and marketed, um, that's called a Kickstarter. <laughs> well said, well said, you know, one of your services that you offer is uh, outside of core legal counsel that you provide is strategic counsel. And this is from a, from a business level. And I, and I wanted to talk to you about this in this very strange economy, this, this ever shifting um, world that we find ourselves in and, and retail space that, you know, we mentioned is, is narrowing further and further. What are some of the best pieces of strategic advice that you can give the business owners that are listening right now? I, I think, you know, a lot of what I do on the strategic side is sort of helping people work through, um, you know, their plans and what they want to do and, and, you know, sort of giving that, that sort of third person disinterested party questioning, you know, you know, well, what's going to happen if this happens? What's going to happen here? How are you going to get over this point? Um, uh, and and really, you know, helping people work through their plans and work through their ideas to make sure that they're right. I mean, you know, right now, um, you know, it's such a huge time of flux right now between consolidation in the in the retail space um the impact of the epidemic in terms of of accelerating this shift to online purchasing 
um, the damage that's being done to, to mom and pop toy stores uh, and the ability to discover uh, new things. Um, you, you've also seen, seen um, a big impact um, in the influencer space with the, the changes that YouTube has made in terms of um, – being able to subscribe to kids channels um, and, and the way that, that kid focused channels are, are, are managed and the ability of, of influencers to drive product. Um, uh, it, you know, it, it, there, there is no golden, you know, ray of sunshine at the moment. There's no golden rule. Uh, I think for anyone to follow, um, I, I, you know, f- for me, my perspective right now, um, is, is to focus on core brands. Um, uh, it's, it's really difficult to launch a brand now. I, you know, there's some, some guys who, you know, launched new brands back in February toy fair, and then, you know, got, got hit by the shutdown and, and it, you know, uh, they're, they're working it, but it's, it's really difficult. Um, uh, you know, I, I think for, for the next year, uh, really have to focus on core brands, really have to focus on your online marketing, um, and your, your online, uh, retail presence. And then, when hopefully everyone is vaccinated and we're back out in the real world, who knows? I, I like, I, I just don't have an, I have a, a real good feel. Um, what is going to be the, the result, you, you know, and, and that comes up, you know, it comes up in terms of movie releases. Um, you know, I, you have to think that there's going to be, a large percentage of people who are going to rush back to the theaters and we're going to get those big theatrical releases again. And you have to also think there's a large percentage of people who, who um, have been lost to that. They just, they've got an enormous screen at home. They've got three or four different streaming services now. Uh, and they are happy not to deal with, you know, the parking and the tickets and the person next to you, you know, tweeting in the middle of a movie. I, I don't know. I think you're going to get some of both and, and how that plays out in a retail market and driving toys. I just don't know that anyone can predict. Yeah. Um, yep. So I, I think at this point, uh, you know, you have to really be focusing on on core brands that are really established, you know, get through this time period and then, you know, maybe have some innovation that's ready to go when, when you know, everybody's out and about again and the schools reopen and, and, you know, you can rely on that sort of back to school kids showing each other what they have sort of marketing. Um, and we can go back to doing experiential marketing um, and, and all these, these things, but, but it's tough. It's, it's, it's tough. You know, when you've been on a disciplined diet for a couple of months and, and you let yourself go for a weekend and you look at that entire gallon of ice cream, <laughs> I think we'll want to do everything all at once. I think yeah. <laughs> for a while we make, we may make ourselves sick, but, uh, but yeah, kid, kids will want to play together. They'll, they'll want to wrestle and get out. Uh, I think there's just this pent up desire for all of us to get together. We may, we may want to do toy fair twice, right? Uh, 
<laughs> when this thing is over with. So, uh, but you're right. The, the, we don't know. We don't know. It, it's uh, uh, what's the word unprecedented. Right. How many times have that? I, I do um, think. I do think one thing that we have proven during the pandemic is that virtual trade shows are just awful. They, they, they don't. <laughs> They just don't work, uh, you know, certainly not for, um, you know, someone like me, you know, who is, is there mainly for, you know, relationship management, see my, see my clients, see my friends, meet new people, um, uh, you know, th- these sort of platforms just, just don't work. So I, I do think the sort of trade show industry has, has proven its worth and its value during, during the the pandemic and, you know, looking forward to getting back with everyone when we can do that. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think, uh, uh, these, uh, virtual experiences, they're great for inf- information sharing. Um, not so great for relationships, not so great for, look, we're a show me industry. Yeah. We want to, we want to see the product. We want to feel the product that what's the tactile, uh, ele- element of it. We want to be there and see the product in person. So hopefully we can get back, to doing that. Scott, as we close down today, uh, give me some final parting advice and, uh, and your thoughts about the industry going forward. Yeah. I mean, my, my last two pieces of advice are, are really non-legal pieces of advice. Um, you know, we're a show me industry. We're also, we're a relationship industry. You know, we depend on the people and the relationships between the people. Uh, and, and so I'm always telling people, Pick good partners. Um, when when you're doing a deal with someone, when you're you know whether it's two inventors looking to collaborate on something or you're looking to license something um, or a merger, pick good partners. Uh, if if you start out with someone that's got a, a reputation for being a little iffy, there's no amount of of lawyering or contracting that's going to save you from that. And um, uh, I always just find that is. Step number one, pick good partners. And, and number two is be nice. You know, there's, there's, you're going to meet these people again. People are constantly hopping between companies. Um, you, you know, you can disagree with people. You can say a deal's just not going to work for you, but be nice. Cause, cause you're going to want to work with that person again sometime in the future. Uh, and you're going to be at the same company. You're going to be collaborating. Uh, uh, just be nice. <laughs> Great advice, Scott. This has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you for sharing. You've just you, you've dropped so much information and knowledge and expertise on us today. How can people reach out to you? You are the inventor's lawyer. How can they reach out to you, find out more about your work and get your advice? Yeah. Uh, so I'm happy. My website is uh, scottlandsbaum.com, S-C-O-T-T-L-A-N-D-S-B-A-U-M. Although as I was spelling that, I realized you'll see it on the website when you listen to this podcast. Um, uh, yeah, my email is scott at scottlandsbaum.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, happy to chat with people. Perfect. Scott, you have a depth of knowledge and uh, anyone listening right now should reach out to Scott and pick his brain about those legal questions or those uh, strategic business questions that you have. Scott, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for coming on today. Yeah, it's a thrill for me. Thanks for having me. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for tuning in to the Power Kid podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe so that you never miss an episode and leave a good review on iTunes. This helps us find more great listeners just like you. 
Remember also to check out the other shows that are a part of the Adventure Media and Events Podcast Network family. This show is brought to you by the PowerKid Design and Development Team. We are a full-service design and development studio serving the toy and game industry for over 20 years. Our partners, large and small, rely on us for invention, concept development, packaging, branding, prototyping, and much more. You can find me on my LinkedIn page, check out the website at PowerKidDesign.com, or email me directly, phil at PowerKidDesign.com. I am always happy to connect and help you develop your next great product. It's been an honor to spend this time with you today. Now go out and make something great. And remember, you are creative because you were created. God bless, and I'll see you next episode.